Holy Spirit doesn't come to serve you. He comes to change you. Catch what I said. The Holy Spirit doesn't show up to serve you. He shows up to change you. He's called the helper. He will guide us into all truth. Truth is a person. The Holy Spirit comes to reveal Jesus to you, to unveil Christ to you. And so I want to talk to you today a little bit about the Holy Spirit and then how to walk in the Spirit. How do we live in the Spirit? I love that this is Pentecost Sunday. It's one of my favorite Sundays of the year because the Holy Spirit has been best friend of mine for so long, since I was a child. Just the awareness of the presence of the Lord. I always had this sense as growing up in my, my parents' house, especially when they encountered the Holy Spirit and it changed everything. I always had this sense that my time with God was not looking outside, like trying to get closer to God. It was always just coming to an awareness that He was actually within me. Like, that's what Jesus said to the disciples. He said, you understand, it's better for you that I go away. There's an upgrade coming for you if I go away. The Spirit, He says, that's with you will be within you. So in other words, as long as Jesus was just a man in a body here on earth, God in the flesh, which he still is. Still God in flesh. He still has a body. John sees it in Revelation. He's got some upgrades, but he's still in a body. Okay? Swords coming out of his mouth. He's juggling stars, feet on fire. It's kind of amazing. But he's still a man in a body, right? Jesus Christ in heaven. There's a man in heaven, right? But the Holy Spirit of God has been sent to actually sit on the throne of our heart. The throne room of God literally now resides within us. That's why you are called in the Scripture the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not just the summer home, the weekend getaway, the Airbnb where he likes to hang out every now and then. When he shows up, he changes. It's not, it's not, like, it's not like he comes to you and goes, oh, I'm just going to make a nice little weekend cottage out of you. No, he comes in to take over to do a complete refurbishment, to look at the things in your life that don't align with the values of heaven and go, we're taking that out and we're going to replace it with something else. Let's just call it what it is. He, he finds the unrighteousness in us and replaces it with his righteousness. He doesn't stop being holy when he comes and fills you, no matter how unholy you think you are. When his holiness and righteousness collides with your unholiness and unrighteousness, how many of you know somebody wins? <laughs> you get a supernatural impartation of his righteousness, and it's not even your fault. You didn't do anything to earn it. You can't claim any pride in it. Why? Because you didn't do it. He shows up, and he looks at you and says, uh, you're righteous. How did I get righteous? Because I'm here. And he can't not be righteous. People say, people say this all the time. I know I'm kind of scattershotting all over here, but we're going we're to find some footing here in just a second. People say this to me all the time. You know, God can't look on sin. Uh, it's a common understanding that people have grabbed a hold of in theology just as a way of saying God's repulsed by sin. They'll say, God cannot look upon sin. As if he gets, sin shows up and God goes, oh no. That's not true. How do we know that? Because he would have never gone looking for Adam and Eve when they sinned if he couldn't look on sin. He's not afraid of sin. He encounters sin face to face and he wins every time. His righteousness overcomes the power of our sinfulness. The story of the law and the old covenant was the power of sin. And the story of the new covenant is the power of righteousness. When Jesus gets around sinners, this is what he does. He sits down and he eats with them. And in that culture, that wasn't cool. And so the religious people who are trying to keep themselves free from all sin who will never sit down and break bread with a sinner, they look at Jesus 
and they say, why are you doing this? And Jesus goes like this, the sick need a doctor. Let me put it another way. Sin is the disease, I am the cure. So when he encounters your sin, he doesn't show up to condemn you, he shows up to heal you. He shows up to change and transform you. This is the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And where did it all start? It wasn't in Acts chapter 2. It was much earlier than that. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. When God formed man, and he takes and creates man from the dust of the earth, the Bible says that he formed man, the only creation where God got his hands dirty, and then he lifts man to his face. The Bible says God breathed into man's nostrils his own very breath, the very living essence of him himself. He goes, Yahweh. What is he doing? The, the, the Bible calls the Holy Spirit wind. Breath is a word for it. Pneuma, ruach. It's the breath of God. And, and what we did is we basically, in that moment, humanity at the very core, the very first one of us, did this. <gasps> and came alive. What did we breathe in? It wasn't just plain old-fashioned oxygen. We got CPR from God in order to become alive. <laughs> just think about that for a second. We, we got a divine moment of breath-to-breath communion. We were dead, and he went, Whew. What was that? That's the Holy Spirit. What happened to us? We came alive. You hear what I'm saying? The very first breath we took as humanity was the Holy Spirit. Let me say it another way. We were born filled with the Spirit of God. That's how humanity even lives and moves and has its being at all. It's because the Holy Spirit went, When we turned our back on God, when we said, not, not thy will, my will be done, we decided to live in a, in a delusion, in a fog of delusion, trying to make our own way, to try to, to, try to live as if this life is all mine. I made myself. Bible talks about it as he who's made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. But sheep are kind of, I mean, they're not the smartest animals on earth. And so we get this idea in our head that, that we created ourselves, and so we're still creating ourselves, so I'm going to make myself. I'm going to create myself. I'm going to figure out who I am. Nobody else is going to determine who I am. I'm going to determine who I am. This is what Adam did from the very beginning. He took on an individual spirit. He basically took the Holy Spirit and said, really don't want you living in here. Can't get rid of you entirely, but I can't ignore you. I'm just going to go ahead and move you out of the way. And down through the ages, we live the distance and separation from God. Even in the old covenant. Listen, God, is, God has always been holding all things together. But in the Old Covenant, in the middle of the Old Covenant, from Exodus chapter 19, the 1300 years, all the way down to Jesus coming out of the waters of baptism, in that time, God, in our minds, lived in a box, or upon a box, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and that's where he stayed. And then Jesus shows up. In the middle of our concepts of a distant, separate God that could be contained, in a box in a building, a box called the Ark of the Covenant, and a temple made by human hands. Jesus shows up to go, uh, that's not confining, you understand. But, but we've always had him behind the veil, okay? It is finished. And when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, something happened to that veil. You guys remember the story? <laughs> what happened to the veil? Tore from top to bottom, this massive, thick veil weighed so much, strips from top to Did it let God out or did it let man in? The answer is yes. Yes, it did. 
What it did was a symbolic revelation that this is what Jesus is coming to tell us. There is no distance and separation between you and God now. No barrier. Now, one of the craziest parts of that story, Phil, to me, that when I look at that pastor, I go, I go what, what in the world were they doing after that moment? Did the priesthood go, oh, good. Now everybody can enter the Holy of Holies. No! As a matter of fact, for the next 40 years, they kept sacrificing. Which tells me something interesting. Some priest said, we got to put that veil back up. <laughs> Think about that. Uh, wow, the veil has torn. Guys, we need a new veil. This is religion's philosophy, and that is to try to convince you that you cannot live without a barrier between you and God. Jesus came to be a new and living way. He is the way, the door. In other words, the gateway, not a closed door, by the way. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. You say, well, that sounds like a closed door. But here's the crazy part. Next couple of verses, John says, and I turned and I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. See, the story there is the tale of two doors, one on God's end and one on ours. The one on his end is open. It's the one on our end that's closed. If there's a veil or a barrier between you and God, it's not because he put it there. He made a new and living way called Jesus Christ. And can I tell you, Jesus didn't come to complicate things. He came to simplify it. This is the beauty of the glory of the gospel. Grab any religion on earth, pick any one of them, and what you will get is a list of rules of things you have to do to be right with their concept of God. But only in Jesus Christ do we get a revelation of what God has done to be right with you. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How did he do it? The Bible says by not counting your transgressions or your sins against you. Now think about that with me for a second. It's like this. It's not like God said, well, I'm going to look around and see who's not sinning and reconcile those good, disciplined people. He looked at a world filled with sin and says this, let's not put their sin in their account. Let's do it that way. In other words, let's not give the power of sin a place in their life to become a barrier between them and me. We're not even going to put it in their account. So when, when you pull your phone out to check your sin balance in your sin account, you see it's still zero. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of that, because of the power of the blood of Christ, he's eliminated all distance and separation and all excuses. Most of our excuses happen, happen because when we sin, we feel like we're unworthy to be in the presence of God. When we choose to do something we know displeases the Lord, we go, oh my goodness, that means I'm out now. And so, oh, I got to get right. Here's the thing about it. The way that grace works is this. You are given righteousness not because you've earned it. You're given righteousness because he initiates it. That's the Bible says it like this. We love him because he first loved us. How much a part of it were you? Well, the Bible says that while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made you alive. You didn't even have the power to make yourself alive. He came to you in the death of your sin and went, Resurrection. And so what do we do now? We now have a pure motivation with no ego and no pride. We are completely, totally pure, holy, and clean, and it's a gift. That's why I say you're righteous and it's not even your fault. Turn to the person next to you and say, you might be more saved than you thought. I'm like, man, I wish I could believe that. Well, that's what I want to talk to you about today. That's why I love the Holy Spirit. The story of the Holy Spirit's incredible. If you go with me to Acts chapter 2, we'll just, we'll just kind of, I'm going to paraphrase it for you. We'll look through there, and then we're going to jump over to Acts chapter 10 and finish up there today. The story of the Holy Spirit coming upon the earth is a story of 
Jesus Christ course correcting or clarifying our, our twisted concepts of God. See, sin is dangerous because of this. It doesn't change God's mind about you, but it does change your mind about God. Sin, listen to me, warps your perception of the goodness of God. And this is why Adam and Eve run from God when they sin. He'd never dropped the hammer on anybody before. God had never done anything to be afraid of before. When they sinned, they got afraid and hid from God. Why? Because they suddenly didn't know how good he was. They automatically, in their unrighteousness, made an assumption. He is going to hurt us. And they ended up running from a God who simply wanted to bring them into redemption. Introduce them to a, a process of redemption. This is what sin does. Find me somebody who's scared to death of God, scared to death of the hammer and the judgment of God, and I'll show, I'll show you somebody who's grabbed a hold of a sin lifestyle and taken it on as an identity, but still still somehow is trying to be right with God in their own strength. What it produces is what I would call an unhealthy fear of the Lord. There is a healthy fear and an unhealthy fear. Let me tell you the difference. There's two words for fear in the Bible, in Hebrew. One of them is the word pachad. And that word means a fear that you have to imagine because nothing's happened yet, but it might. Fear of your imagination. It's a basically a fear of a punishment that hasn't happened yet, but you're just anticipating it at any moment. Okay? So it's all in here. But then there's another word, and it's the word yirah. And the word there has to do with time tense. It's not in the future, it's present right now. And it basically means I am having a present encounter with the glory of God. Like, it's happening right now, and it's making me tremble, because, whoa, it's amazing. It's like, it's like this morning. I can tell you this. I mean, the Holy Spirit is here. He's present right now, okay? He's around you, within you, right? If you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and the blinders been taken off, the veil's off your life, and now you can see him as he truly is, then you begin to realize, oh, my goodness, in him I live and move and have my being. You can walk aware of the presence of God consistently, in other words, you can have a constant awareness of the glory of God. And, and, and I would pray that most of us can walk with every step and every breath we take with this idea that, that we are never without him. This is amazing. I mean, the love, the joy, the peace that we have access to in the presence of the Holy Spirit is, is beyond description. However, when we get together, like this morning, there was a moment in worship, and uh, Pastor Phil Ruby was were facilitating this, this time. Suddenly, there was this moment in worship where all of a sudden, I felt like, ooh, more than one or two or ten of us suddenly became aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And when collectively, we all just take a moment and go, you are here. Thank you, Jesus. And our hearts are filled with gratitude. Love and compassion begins to increase upon us. What ends up happening, there's, a, there's kind of an eruption that takes place in the room, and it happened just a little bit this morning. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, I love that. It's fun for me when I get into church where there are some people that know that the Holy Spirit is in them. Do you know? <laughs> Turn to the person next to you and say, do you know? I mean, you just wake up to this reality. Awaken to the awareness of this. That, that he is with and in you. You and I can experience the yurah, fear of the Lord, when we realize that the glory of the Holy Spirit is actually not just upon us, but within us. We live as people of the glory of God. That, that's a healthy fear of God. As a matter of fact, Psalm, I think it's Psalm 111 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the word pakad, it's the word yurah. It's not, the, it's not the impending judgment that you're expecting to drop on your life or the fear of the punishment of God as the beginning of wisdom. No. It's the present tense encounter with the glory of God as the birthplace of wisdom. 
In other words, you don't get wisdom without a revelation of your union with Jesus. He's the source of all wisdom. And when you realize that the source lives in you, then you know what that makes you? A resource. Now you and I become a conduit for the glory of God to flow through us into a very confused world so we can put the clarity of who Jesus is on display. We can put the power of the Holy Spirit on display. So in Acts chapter 2, when, <clears throat> when Jesus, right before this, Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and suddenly he doesn't even say goodbye. He just shoot rockets off into the air. And they stand there staring at the sky like, is he coming down? What is going on right now? He just knows how to make an exit, you know? An entrance and an exit. He's good at both of them. And so uh, eventually angels have to show up and say, why are you guys staring in the air? Jesus will come back the same way you saw him go. Move along, nothing to see here, right? And so what they, they know one thing that they've been given to do is to go to Jerusalem, to this upper room, and wait until they're filled with power from on high. Talk about the most minimal of instructions for one of the most important events in human history. Get, get in that room and wait. Now, how long did they wait? Anybody know? A couple hours? A couple days? Ten days! I've been in some long church services. But ten days. All right. And by the end of the first day, you know, by the three in the morning, nothing's happened. I think I'd be looking over at Pastor Phil and go, did he say anything about, like, how long this was going to take? Ah, we never thought to ask him. I don't know. I mean, just figured it'd be, you know. Okay, what, what about this? What if it's already happened? Well, how do we know? Well, what did he say was going to happen? We'd be filled with power. What does that look like? That's the question everybody asks in church. What does it look like? We, we didn't bother to ask him what it was going to look like. <laughs> so suddenly, I think there's got to be some frustration in the room because you got to stop and think about this. <laughs> nobody bothered to ask him how long it was going to take, and nobody bothered to ask him what was going to happen. He just said, come in this room and wait. You got 120 Christians together in this room for 10 days. I don't know what happened in that 10 days, but I'm going to give you a, a, a bit of an informed guess. And I think I'm right. The Bible says the Holy Spirit showed up. The power, the presence, the manifestations of that power and presence appeared, showed up, and, and manifest in the room. And there was the trigger point. Pastor Phil read it to you this morning, quoted it to you this morning. When they were in one accord. That means when they came into a place of unity. Right? So listen to this. Unity doesn't mean that they were all together in the same room. Just being together in the same room did not achieve unity. Otherwise, it would have happened the first day. Now ponder that then. The trigger point for the Holy Spirit showing up was that the church got united. And it wasn't about just being in the same room. It was about being of one mind, one heart. It was about being of one focus. Now, this, that's what, here's what this tells me. It took 10 days for 120 people who had just spent 40 days listening to the resurrected Jesus Christ talk about the kingdom of God. Now listen to what I'm about to tell you here, because I don't think I've ever actually said this out loud in a, in a church service. <clears throat> it took... 120 people, 10 days to find unity, even though they had all just spent over a month listening to Jesus talk about the kingdom. So it wasn't the fact that they heard the same information that brought them into unity either. They might have agreed on their belief system. They might have agreed upon their doctrine. You know what they probably didn't agree on? Each other. Jesus can unite us around him, around doctrine, around the reality of the presence and the power of God, but we can still not have unity if we don't authentically love one another. Catch what I'm saying? 
It's not your right theology that brings you into unity. That certainly helps. It's not even us all looking at Jesus that brings us into unity. That certainly helps. Jesus said it like this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. That commandment's really important because it's one of the first commandments he gives in the new covenant. We're, We're in a different covenant than the old covenant. Big time different. Let me give you an example. Uh, one day a lawyer comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But remember this? Now, a lot of churches today have taken that on as their motto, love God, love people. Great. It's nice. But Jesus wasn't revealing the new covenant to us. He was revealing the best the old covenant could do. What's the best that the old covenant can do? Well, you love God and you love people. But here's the deal. It's all about you. You love God to the best of your ability. You love people as best as you can. But then one day, Jesus comes up with a new covenant commandment. Here's a new commandment he says I give you. New. This is a brand new one. Love one another. What's new about that? We already got that from the law. Oh, no. Here's the new part. As I have loved you. See, here's the difference. In the old covenant, you love like you. In the new covenant, you love like Jesus. That's what I'm saying? So the Holy Spirit falls on a united people who love one another just like Jesus. Which means you might have to lay down your opinions for people you don't like to see them through the eyes of Christ. To, to, to feel a compassion for them from the very heartbeat of God. And most of the time when we don't love each other, it's because they annoy us. They do something, do something we don't like. They act in a way we don't like. And Jesus said it like this in John chapter uh, 8. Excuse me, is it 8.15 or 15.8? Oh, we'll go with 8.15. John chapter 8 verse 15, Jesus says, you guys judge according to the flesh, I'm not judging anybody. What is he saying? What man does, we look on the outside because all we can see is the behavior of a person and we judge whether or not we're going to receive or like or accept this person by their behavior, right? And so Jesus doesn't do that. He has this way of looking beyond the costume. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 said one day, from now on we regard nobody according to the flesh. In other words, he came so into alignment with the heart of the Father that he decided to stop letting people's actions in their costume dictate how he was going to treat them. Yeah. And the reality is that sometimes what we do is we look at the actions and we think we can change the heart if we can just force a person to change their actions, and it doesn't work that way. This is why the power of the Holy Spirit is so important. When the Holy Spirit comes into you, he doesn't force a change, he invites a change. Right? doesn't come to serve you, he comes to change you. And when he shows up, he finds things in your life that need changing, and it may take 20 years to change. Some of you instantly, old things passed away, all things have become new. He comes in and makes all things new. You know what? He will even come in and he will change your desires to reflect the things of God. Suddenly you'll hate things you used to love and love things you used to hate. And you're going, what has happened to me? But you know what he doesn't do anything about? The habits that you and I generate as we practice those desires. You have 30, 40 years of practicing a desire. You, in your flesh, have generated a habit. And this habit now can become something that we just keep doing. Why? Because we're comfortable with the sameness of it. And we don't want to change, even though we get to the point where we're like, I hate what I do, but I can't understand what happens. This is where discipleship comes in. This is where accountability comes in, where suddenly the Holy Spirit, through a trusted friend, says to you, you are not living according to the truth of your identity. You're living according to a false identity God didn't give you. It's like seeing somebody who who is supposed to be a king with a crown on their head, and now they're in the gutter, and they're looking for, like, used food because they think that's all they deserve. What would you do to a person like that? Why is that king in that gutter? You might, you might want to condemn them for living below where they're supposed to be. 
But if you begin to realize, wait, they just don't know who they are. What do you do? You come in, and the sick need a doctor, right? You become the doctor. Now you lift that person out of the gutter. The Bible talks about that he raises the poor up from the ash heap and makes them to sit with princes. Why? Because he sees you a king, as a king and a priest, as a royal child, son, daughter of the Most High God. And whenever we act like something else... It means we're believing a lie that he's trying to break off of us. So when somebody comes up to you and challenges behavior areas, don't, don't think that they're condemning or bringing condemnation into your life. It may be an act of love that's causing them by the power of the Holy Spirit to confront a false identity. Right? So the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 falls on the church. Ten days they finally come into unity. Boom! The Holy Spirit comes and falls on them. And here's the crazy thing. He does three things that nobody had ever seen before. The Bible says, the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Oh, what is that? That's our birthplace. That's how we came alive in the first place. It's a reminder of our origin. We heard a sound of a rushing mighty wind to help us remember that we came alive, our very first breath was you, Holy Spirit. Ah, and now what happens? Sound of rushing mighty wind fills the house and, and tongues of fire rested on everybody. Now, I know we think it means like, I, I grew up in church, so I remember the coloring books, the Holy Spirit coloring books. And the apostles are all, I mean, they're all, I don't know what's going on, but they all look like white men from California in the Middle East. What are they doing there? We have no idea. And they're all like this. They're all like this, super nice. I'm telling 10 days to get in unity, I bet there was some words between people. Peter, you're a microphone hog. Every time you get up to speak, nobody else has a chance. Well, John, you're such a suck-up. Every time Jesus sat down, you put your head on his chest yeah, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. Nobody calls themselves that except for you, which is true, by the way. John is called the disciple Jesus loved. He's only ever called that in the Gospel of John. <laughs> so don't think these guys were all cool with each other. The minute master's out of the way, Jesus gone. Their, their master, their Lord, their Savior has rocketed off into heaven. He's not around to, to temper my opinions of everybody around me. So, after about three or four days, I'm sure they looked at each other and went, you know, I got problems with you people. Maybe there was some fists thrown. I don't know. Maybe they threw hands. I don't know what happened here. But somehow, it took 10 days for the church to actually get to a point where they came to love each other. Probably started throwing fists, ended up hugging one another. I mean, who knows? But when they finally all came into unity, boom, here shows the Holy Spirit. And tongues of fire fell on each of them. So in the coloring book, you see the guys all standing there, and they'd have like two little flames, non-threatening flames, hovering about six inches over everybody's head, you know. But, but I don't think that was it at all. Why? Because they all ran outside. When this happened, they all ran outside. Why would you run outside if I look over at Pastor Phil and I go, oh, look at you, that's cute. A couple little flames hovering. You got a little fire away over your head, super safe distance away from you, not threatening anybody. No, that wouldn't cause me to run outside. But you know what would cause me to run outside? If I look over at Pastor Phil and his head was on fire. And he looks at me and goes, your head's on fire. Ah, we run. what do we do? We run outside. Stop, drop, and roll. I mean, what is happening right now? And then we get up, and all we can talk about is the marvelous works of God. Now, we might not have even known we were speaking in tongues in the moment because the Bible says the whole city becomes aware of God, and people show up because of the sound that occurred. There was a sound, a frequency in the atmosphere that shifted, caused everybody in the city to suddenly have this awareness of God. And the Bible says when they show up, people from all over the world were there. And it says that each, listen, each one heard them all speaking in his own tongue the wonderful works of God. So as these folks are praising God, 
suddenly you've got all these people from different lands. It's like standing in front of ten different people who all speak ten different languages and they can all understand you. What happened in this moment? I believe what happened in this moment was a reversal of the curse of the Tower of Babel. Remember that? That's where the, the whole world was united. And the Bible says God looks at them and goes, in unity, they can accomplish anything. Because you're made in the image and likeness of God, even if you're not working in the purposes of God, all you have to do is create some synergy and unity, and you can get really powerful. Major corporations have proved this to be true. They're like, how in the world are they accomplishing that? It's called uni unity. said, so in unity, these guys can accomplish anything. But it's an earthly unity. Not a heavenly unity, it's an earthly unity. And so what God does is he changes the languages up a little bit. And so now, it starts out with some misunderstanding and communication. And now, people are scattered all over the place. They're tribal. I'm going to stick with the people who understand me. Isn't that the way we are today? We live in a world where everybody's like, I'm going to find people who understand me. Right? What does the Holy Spirit come to do? He comes to completely remove the veils and the barriers between us even in our ability to communicate to one another. And so now, what ends up happening in this moment is as they're worshiping and praising God, everybody can understand them. It's amazing. Now, there is the tongue of men and there is a tongue of angels. And wow, that tongue of angels needs some interpretation because it might sound like gibberish to you, but it, it's amazing in heaven. Why? Because when you pray in tongues, you're always, 100% of the time, praying the will of God. That's why the Bible says that when we don't know what to pray, when we pray in tongues, we are always praying the will of God for the moment. Uh-huh. The Spirit Himself makes intercession with our spirit, with groanings we can't even put into words, just sounds that just come out. And suddenly, as these sounds come out, what ends up happening? Something starts shifting in the atmosphere. God starts doing things. As we pray in the Spirit, listen, you got a gift of tongues on your life and you don't use it very often, it's, it's, it's like having access to the most amazing gift in the world that we just put in a closet and never even used. Encouragement gift, building up your spirit. Okay, so we have this amazing moment here in Acts chapter 2. If you go forward to Acts chapter 10, you're going to see a story that I want to highlight to you today. And uh, it's a story of a man named Cornelius, another Holy Spirit encounter. Before I do that, let me do an illustration here. Um, Phil, Pastor Phil, would you pick me three people? Just three, anybody, it doesn't matter. I just need three volunteers who will do nothing but stand <clears throat> up here with me. So whoever Pastor Phil chooses, come on up here and stand with me. Awesome. Good deal. Yay. All right. Stan, let's, uh, let's put you back here. What's your name? Jason, incredible piano player. Let's put you right here. And you are? Adrian, let's put you right here. All right? <clears throat> I want to show you something really important about how to live the spirit-filled life and spirit-led life. We are created in the image and likeness of a triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that you and I are made as spirit, soul, and body. That's why Paul said in Thessalonians that he's able to preserve, present you pure and spotless, body, soul, and spirit to God. Okay? That's the, the thing of Jesus here. So a healthy, a healthy believer, disciple of Christ, will look like this. We're going to make you, Adrian, spirit. You are spirit. And one more time. Jason is soul. And Stan in the back is body. Of course. So, <clears throat> you get to be body today. All right. This is a healthy person. Spirit's in front. Soul, mind, will, and emotions are right there in the middle. It's the glue that holds the spirit and the body together. And yet, when man fell, he got out of order. We got out of order. So, spirit and body switch places real quick here. Spirit goes to the back. Body now comes to the front. Now, when the body suddenly comes to the front, the body starts thinking, oh, I am in charge. I am the top, which, but here's the thing. You understand this about the flesh. The body is not bad. It's a gift. None of you signed up for life. 
None of you filled out an application to live. You were thrust into this world through no fault of your own. You suddenly showed up here and you were given a vehicle. It's like, here you go. Here's your car. That's what this is right here. I know some of you wanted a Ferrari and you got a Ford, all right? Or a minivan. I don't know. Deal with it. Whatever. I mean, it's what you got, okay? So, you know, and listen, it needs some maintenance. In this earth, there's a maintenance that's needed. You know, change the oil, rotate the tires, and give it a bath every now and then, at least for the rest of us, all right? Just saying. So, <clears throat> this is it. But this is the vehicle. This is a temporary vehicle that you ride around this earth in. When I was, I remember like the other day I heard somebody say, Bill, I think we're supposed to live forever. I want, I want to go for immortality. And I'm like, everybody who tells me that is 21. <laughs> I want to live forever. I'm like, that was great for me 30 years ago. But the other day, I hurt myself checking my blind spot. You know, and you look in the mirror after a while, and you're going, I don't think hair is supposed to grow there. You know, I'm, I could use an upgrade, right? I mean, you know what I'm saying? So, this isn't you. This is the vehicle you drive around in. Now, now catch what I'm about to say, because it's very important, especially for the day we're in right now. When you don't know Jesus, and you don't know the Holy Spirit, you think this is all there is. And you think this is you. And when you think this is you, and you come into this point in life where you're not happy with yourself, and you don't feel like yourself, then the only thing that you can think of to change is this. That's what I'm saying here. You look and go, ah. I look in the mirror and go, who in the world are you? Remember, Jesus said to the disciples one day, who do you say that I am? He wasn't asking because he didn't know who he was. He wanted to know if they knew his identity. Because the reality is, unless you know who he is, you'll never know who you are because you're made in his image and likeness. So when we shut him out of our lives, all we can do is guess. And we never truly feel like ourselves. And so people look in the mirror and they go, who are you? Not myself. i got to find myself. Find myself. So it starts with people we're going to identify with. I'm gonna, is this group of, accept me? Okay, maybe I'm one of them. And then you work, and that still doesn't quite feel right. Yeah, young people do it like this. I'm going to change my hair. I'm going to change my look. I'm going to change my clothes. It's all physical. It's all about changing the costume. And then when you still look in the mirror and go, I don't feel like myself, then the changes start getting more extreme. I mean, crazy extreme. And we're seeing that today. But catch this with, understand what I'm about to say, right? I, I, I don't look at people who are making extreme changes and bring any condemnation to them at all. All they're doing is desperately crying out, who am I? You know the reality is? If you know Jesus and you can introduce them to the Holy Spirit, you have the answer. You have the answer. And that's the deal. When we suddenly realize who we are, oh my goodness, everything changes. Now, the body is not a great leader. As a matter of fact, the body doesn't lead like this. The turn around and face uh, Jason back there. The body is actually very self-centered. And the body wants to make sure that the mind, will, and emotions are all focused on it. So the body is going to make sure that it's focused on the soul. Everything's very soulish. I want my, my, all the thoughts to be about me. I want all the feelings and emotions to be about me. I want all the decisions made to be with me in mind. So if the body's not happy, nobody's happy. But if the body's happy, everything's okay. So we take care of our body. We massage it. We feed it all the good stuff. And, 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 and we want to make sure that it's felt well about. It's like so self-esteem, right? So now we have to have this, are, do you feel good about me? The body's looking at the soul going, do you feel good about me? Uh, are you, can you make some decisions to make, to make me feel good? In the back here, the spirit, four spirits back here, you can't cut the spirit off, but the spirit looks ahead because the body's kind of moving in this direction, but it's very hard to lead when you're not facing in the right direction, when you're self-focused. And so the spirit looks and goes, uh, there's a cliff over there, and the body's like, you know what? We don't listen to you anymore. Just be quiet back there. Don't even pay any attention to this. We, we can't cut you off, but we can't ignore you. And the spirit's like, whatever, you know? 
When somebody comes up and shares the gospel with you and tells you about Jesus, the body's like, yeah, we're not interested in that. Soul, pay close attention to me. This is going to threaten my leadership, okay? And the spirit is like, yes, I've just heard truth. And so now there's a bit of an internal battle between the spirit and the flesh. And when you finally surrender to say, Jesus, be Lord of my life, something amazing happens. God comes in and he rearranges you. It's like now things get put in order. So body and spirit switch back around. Oh, see, the Bible says those in the flesh can't please God. Why? Because God is spirit and those who worship him, in other words, walk with, walk aware of him, live aware of him, must worship it in spirit and in what? Truth. And truth is a person. Who is truth? Jesus. So we commune with the Holy Spirit who's always pointing us in the direction of Jesus. And so now we're being led by the good shepherd who is leading and guiding us from the inside. And now all of a sudden there's peace. Oh, and the body back here goes, oh, this is so much better. It's like, man, that was rough up there. Oh, I, like, like the caboose on a train. I'm just going to hang on for the ride. Now, when the Spirit is in charge, healing can happen. This is, I'm giving you a key here on how to walk in divine power and divine health. Healing starts happening when the Spirit's in charge. The Bible says this, when the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, He what? Quickens. It means make alive your mortal body. And so now, the Spirit from up here is like filled with life. And, and it trickles back to renew the mind, heal the emotions, and now decisions are made from heaven's perspective, and life starts to manifest the favor of God upon it. Why? Because your spirit is in charge. And that life-giving power that flows from the spirit, the body becomes a recipient of the life that's exploding within the spirit. And suddenly, suddenly the body starts going, man, my youth is renewed. I'm feeling, I'm feeling whole. I'm feeling healthy. He said, does that mean I'll never get sick? No. Hey, listen, every Christian will find a point of, like, like this. I said this to the guys yesterday, and it's such an uncomfortable thing to say, but it's true. Every Christian and non-Christian in this life will find suffering somewhere. All right? Jesus said it like this in John 16, 33. Spoken these things to you that you may have peace, and in this world you will have trouble but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So here's the deal. There are times where sickness might touch your body, but it can't touch your spirit when your spirit's in charge. This is why you can be sick in your flesh, but healthy in your soul and healthy in your spirit and still be filled with the joy of the Lord. Have you ever known people like that? They're suffering, they got stage four cancer, the doctors have pronounced no hope over them, but they're just filled with the joy of the Lord. What's happened? They have now surrendered to the life-giving power of the Spirit, and, and, and now what happens to the body is in the hands of God, but your joy is intact. You know what the Bible says about your joy? The joy of the Lord is what? Your strength, and when you're weak in your flesh, you need the strength of the joy of God, and so if your body's in charge, you have to feel good to feel joy. But when your spirit's in charge, you feel joy no matter what's going on. You can even be facing grief and feel the joy of the Lord that comes from the strength of God. Knowing that even though I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because I'm not alone. I'm walking by the Spirit. I'm being led by the Spirit. Does that make sense? Awesome. Give these guys a hand. Have a seat. Thank you. <clears throat> now walking by the Spirit. Listen, you can get jumbled and out of order every day. Many times a day. The, the body back there, hey, every now and then the body goes, I, I got an idea. I'd really like an ice cream cone. And the spirit goes, sure, that's a great idea. We haven't done that in a while. Let's go get a milkshake. And the body's like, yes. Then every now and then the body's like, I'd like that third slice of cheesecake, and I'd like to click on that bad website, and I'd like that half of that bottle of bourbon. Okay, maybe the whole bottle. And the spirit now has to go, you know, body, that's not a good idea. That's not going to serve us well. And the body's like, oh, okay, thanks for reminding me that you're in charge. Every time, listen to me, every time your spirit reminds your body who's in charge, you are walking in a new covenant lifestyle of fasting. 
hmm, interesting. He thought fasting was like, I'm going to take 21 days, and I'm going to like, I'm just not going to eat anything for breakthrough in my life. If God provokes that, you'll get supernatural grace to do it. If it's your idea, it's called a hunger strike, okay? And so many times what we do is we end up doing that kind of fasting to twist God's arm into doing what we want him to do, right? And, uh, and yet, you can live a lifestyle of prayer and fasting when you walk in the Spirit. When you're walking in the Spirit and you're constantly realizing your communion with God is no distance and no separation. The veil's been torn. You're praying without ceasing. And every time your body has an idea that will not serve your spirit and your spirit reminds your body who's in charge, you're fasting. And with this revelation, you can fast and pray as a lifestyle multiple times a day. And if you don't know this is the case and you don't know that your body is a toddler that occasionally comes up with a good idea but a lot of times has bad ideas, every time your body wants to do something that you know is contrary to the will of God, you'll feel like a bad Christian. I still have this desire. No, you, ha- you have a flesh that still needs to be parented like a toddler. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible that your body can actually want to worship God? Yes. King David spent so much time in the presence of the Lord, that he finally got to this place where he said, my heart and my flesh long for you. You catch that? He actually developed the ability to have an appetite for God, spirit, soul, and body. That's where discipline, training, and discipleship comes into play. The longer we spend walking this thing out with God by the Spirit, you'd be surprised how you begin to train your flesh to actually desire the same things the Spirit wants. Uh-huh. Last thing I want to tell you. Acts chapter t- uh, 10. <clears throat> the beautiful story of a guy named Cornelius. And Cornelius <clears throat> is, is a Roman centurion. And Cornelius, um, which is amazing when you stop and think about it, Cornelius shouldn't serve God but somehow, revival has happened among the Romans. The Roman centurions are apparently having an outpouring of the goodness of God, and Cornelius prays, worships, and he financially blesses people he's paid to oppress. And so, what the Bible says is that Cornelius one day has a visitation from an angel, and the angel says to him, Cornelius, your prayers and your alms have risen as a memorial before God, and now send for Peter. He's down on vacation down here by the sea, and he's going to bring you something you need. This is an important note, and, and that is that, that God could have and probably should have, maybe. I won't say that he made a mistake. He didn't make a mistake. But if you, if, you, if you stop and think about it with the logical mind, he should have picked somebody other than Peter. Why? Because Peter does not like these people. Paul loved these people. Peter did not. Yet God is going to annoy Peter by putting him in front of people he doesn't like. God is absolutely good, but he's not always nice. Okay? So, so God goes, send for Peter. Peter's now down on the roof of a house, and he's hangry. He's mad hungry. You know what I'm talking about. Anybody hangry? You ever, ever get hangry? <clears throat> yeah. So, he's, he's pacing back and forth, and all of a sudden, God decides to work with his hunger. And all of a sudden, here comes a sheet down from heaven, and in that sheet, is the best cruise line buffet you've ever seen in your life. There's lobster, there's crab, there's catfish, there's bacon. God bless bacon, all right? <laughs> Woo, thank God for the new covenant. Bacon all day. So there's bacon in there. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, a voice from heaven, God's voice comes out and says, Peter, you hungry? Arise, kill and eat. And here's what Peter says. No, Lord. Think about that. He knows who's talking to him. And he says no to God. I think any of us would probably give everything in our bank account and everything in our best friend's bank account to hear the audible voice of God. What if God came to you and asked you to do something and you weren't super comfortable with it? And you go, no, Lord. Think about that for a second. 
He knows who he's talking to. God goes, oh, well, rewind the play. Let's do it again. And he does this three times. And each time, the outcome is the same. Finally, this is what God says to him. He looks at Peter and goes, Peter, do not call anything that I have cleansed unclean. There's some guys at the door. They're taking you to a Bible study. Go with them. Peter goes with them. And he gets there. And suddenly he realizes, I'm at the house of a Roman centurion. And I'm in the presence of a bunch of people I don't like. In Acts chapter 10, verse 28, Peter stands up and he begins his sermon like this. You know, it's against my law to, the law for me to even be in a room with you guys. What a terrible way to start a message, you know? It's like, I don't even like any of you people. It's against the law for me to even be here. But then he says this. He reveals something, and that is up there on the roof. Peter, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who knows the voice of the Lord, who has such a depth of relationship with God that even when God asks him to do something he doesn't want to do, he says, no. Peter reveals to this room that that little play was not about food. Peter says in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, he says, God has showed me that I'm not allowed to call any man unholy or unclean. Anybody Think about this with me for a second. And people will say, wait, wait, wait. Does that mean that everybody is holy and clean? Wrong question. Let's not even go there. Let's just pretend this with me. Let's say the Lord said to you, I put a call on your life to preach the gospel. To take the gospel to the world. To to preach the gospel to every person that you find in front of you. Only one rule. You're not allowed to call anybody unholy or unclean. In other words, you don't get to see anybody as holy and unclean. Okay? Now go. Here's my question. How would it change how we interact with people if all we could see is holy and clean when we looked at them? Say, why does this matter? Because right after this, right after Acts chapter 10, verse 28, Peter goes on to preach the gospel. And when he gets down to talk about the resurrection and the power of Jesus to overcome and forgive sin, the Bible says the Holy Spirit fell on the room. And nobody's more shocked than Peter. The Holy Spirit interrupts Peter's message and falls on this room full of people Peter doesn't like. What changed? The gospel was the same. But what changed was the way he saw these people. He refused to look through eyes of judgment anymore, and he decides from now on, whenever I look at people, whether I like them or not, it's not the issue. I'm going to look at people and see them as holy and clean because of what Christ has done. It's like this. It's like looking at people and seeing Jesus in them before they see Jesus in themselves. And then treating them as if that was the case. I guarantee it would change our interaction with people. And you know what? We would probably be even more effective conduits for the Holy Spirit to move through our lives into this world if we looked at people and said, you know what? I can't see unholy and unclean. All I can see is holy and clean. In other words, I'm not going to let the costume tell me who you are. I want to know who you are by the Spirit of God. God told Jeremiah the prophet, he said, I knew you before I formed you. Now think about that. That means you could be known before you knew you could be known. So then what did he know when he first thought of you? Anything you believe about yourself that he doesn't believe about you is a lie that he's going to confront and break off of you. You have one assignment in this life. Find out what God believes about you and agree with that. Here's the final point of this message today. And if this message only had one point, it would be this. To look at people and see holy and clean is hard enough. But I can tell you where it's the hardest is the person that you look at when you look in the mirror. When God looked at Peter and said, you're not allowed to call anybody unholy or unclean, it also included Peter himself. Peter now had to confront all of his own personal sense of inadequacy and unworthiness. He had to overcome all of that in order to see how God saw him. 
One of my favorite stories in the Bible is a prodigal son story. And here's a part of the story we probably never think about. That son, when he came home from living in a hog pan and eating hog food, how many of you know when he came home, he came home with a messed up identity? He didn't come home because he suddenly loved his father. He came home because he had nowhere else to go and he was desperate. The father didn't care about the motivation. The father was just glad to have him home. And he didn't have to look for the robe or the ring. He puts it on him. How many of you know just the putting of the robe on him and putting the ring on him did not clean him up? The father had to come to a place where he didn't see anything but holy and clean in this boy. But in his flesh, he probably had issues. I mean, he probably first off needed a bath. Probably needed a... Probably needed some medical attention. If he'd been living in the hog pen, he probably needs some serious medical attention. He also has to overcome how the older brother sees him, the person who's been in the house the whole time and done it all right, who's looking through eyes of judgment. He's got to deal with that. He's also got to overcome how the servants in the house see him. Why is this guy worthy of so much honor when he's been so dishonorable? He's got to overcome the prejudice of every single person that's living in that house. You know who probably is the only person in the house who saw him through eyes of grace? was the father. And yet... The son just wants to come home. And there are people that God is going to bring through the doors of these, this church who are coming here for no other reason is that they know, have no other place to go and they're desperate. And in their flesh, they need a bath, spiritually speaking. They need a bath. They need some medical attention. They have tons of issues. And they're actually, they're here, even though maybe the majority of people look around and go, man, that person, This guy probably had some habits. He may have dealt with some addictions while he was out there in the world doing what he was doing. You know what? He still probably has some of those issues that he needs to be walked through with. Like encounter somebody who says, you can make this. You can get through this. We're going to stand with you through this. He doesn't come home and immediately he's just fine. He comes home and he comes home and he's got work to do. He's restored, but he's got work to do. Don't mistake restoration for perfection of every part of a person's life. Their spirit may be instantly made perfect, mind, will, and emotions restored, but in their flesh, standing back here, even though things are in alignment, the flesh is still screaming for what it wants. And in order for us to lead the person into a fullness of newness of life, you're going to have to take the time to be led by the Holy Spirit and look at them through the eyes of God and go, all I can see is holy and clean. I know you keep messing up, and I know. But you're a child of God in the house. You got the robe of righteousness. You got that ring that carries the authority of your Father, your Heavenly Father on it. And we're consistently having to tell you, be holy for your Father is holy. Be holy. Be be perfect for your Father's perfect. It's It's not a requirement to live up to our expectations. It's an invitation for you to become who you truly are. And for some people, it might take a lifetime. For others, the the change might be instantaneous. But the question is, are we willing to let the Holy Spirit change the way we see so that when they come in, we look at them and we don't regard the flesh? We don't stumble over their false identity. Instead, we embrace who the Father has always known them to be. And our words begin to reflect the sound of heaven to bring that spirit back to life. I really had a great time with this message on the Holy Spirit. I pray that you feel uh, today an awakening connection with the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want to explore this a little bit more, I encourage you to go to Amazon, pick up the book, Unveiled Horizon, Reflections on the Nature of God. There's a lot of writing in there about the Holy Spirit because it's all wrapped up within the the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this relationship, this other-centered, self-giving relationship expressed in love. And it'll answer some questions for you, like what does an authentic, vulnerable, intimate, and unhindered relationship with God actually look like? What does it feel like to live in existence with no sense of judgment, guilt, shame, or even a sin consciousness? What does it sound like to abide in the rest of the living word that is Christ in you 
the hope of glory. And what does it do to us to fully realize the indwelling presence of the Father, Spirit, and Son? These meditations and reflections are the things that we talk about in the book, Unveiled Horizon, Reflections on the Nature of God. A few years ago, while Bill and I were in Scotland, we met a castle owner. He owns Carberry Tower in Edinburgh, Scotland. Bill and I really sensed the presence of God in that place. It was like a thin veil uh, with a really deep history with great spiritual heritage. When we came home from Scotland, several people told Bill, they kind of had this surprised look of revelation on their face. They told Bill, I keep seeing this word over you, Kingmaker. So we kind of tucked that away. I contacted the owner of the castle and I told him what I had seen over the castle, that I sensed something really powerful there. So he requested a Skype meeting so we could talk about it. And I asked him to share his story of how he acquired the property, which was an absolutely miraculous story. As he told me the story, he said, My wife and I walk the property and pray. As we do, we keep hearing this word, kingmakers. When he said that, Bill and I about came unglued. So all of that to say, we're inviting you to join us at Carberry Tower in Edinburgh, Scotland, April 15th through the 19th of 2024, next year. Um, We have a few rooms left available. We've already sold out uh, the top rooms, but we have some left for you. So if you're interested, go to BillVanderbush.com. If you go to the menu and you scroll down, you'll see Kingmaker Conference. Click on that and choose Kingmaker UK. And that'll give you all the details you need to know. There's an email address on that page where you can contact us to get your spot reserved. This is Bill Vanderbush. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll see you next time.